This recording will be looking at 2 Nephi 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And this is uh, quite an assignment because 2 Nephi 9 is such an important uh, chapter in the Book of Mormon. So let's just start right out. 2 Nephi 6, kind of Jacob, Nephi's brother, is telling us that he has an assigned topic. Verse 4, I will read you the words of Isaiah. They are the words which my brother has desired that I should speak unto you. And I speak unto you for your sakes that ye may learn to and glorify the name of your God. Now, remember on the title page, it speaks of different audiences the Book of Mormon is written to. The remnant of the house of Israel, that's the every children of Lehi, right, who are there. And in the latter days, you know, to convince Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ. But this sounds like Jacob's talking to his people right now, and he shares with them a couple of Isaiah chapters, 2 Nephi 7 and 2 Nephi 8. And if I were to summarize 2 Nephi 7 with apologies to Isaiah, if I don't do this right, I hope you'll come visit me in my apartment in the Telestial Kingdom. Well, this is what my summary kind of of 2 Nephi 7 is. The Lord asks, did I leave you or did you leave me? Even though Israel has transgressed, house of Israel, the Lord will keep his covenant promises. The Messiah will come, but he will be rejected. He will ultimately be delivered in triumph. And those who reject him will left to be to walk by the light of their own fires and will be sorrowful. So I'm reading a little bit out of my book, Isaiah for Airheads. So, to summarize again, the, at the end of 2 Nephi 7, after you've read it, God is dependable. He doesn't move. The tree of life is not transplanted to different locations to keep us guessing. We know where it is and how to get there. In the New Testament, the Lord's unchanging position and his eagerness to be involved in our lives is described in these words. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh, asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. In these, in Second Nephi 7, Isaiah assures modern-day covenant Israel that God is constantly available, constantly willing to keep his promises, has not lost his power to perform miracles, large or small. And just as Jesus was determined to fulfill the Father's will despite persecution, we should be willing to do the Lord's will and not seek to do our own will or to walk in the dim light that we have created. At the end of 2 Nephi 7, which is like Isaiah 50, it says in verse 11, Behold all ye that kindle fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks which ye have kindled. This shall ye have of mine hand, ye shall lie down in sorrow. So we can't <laughs> create the kind of light that... God gives us. Second Nephi chapter 8 is Isaiah chapter 51 and the first couple of verses of Isaiah chapter 52. One of the things I like about this chapter is verse 9 starts, awake, awake. Verse 17 starts, awake, awake. And verse 24 starts, awake, awake. So clearly Jacob is talking to those who are already awake physically but they might be asleep spiritually. And there's this 
you have to be shaken and awakened from a spiritual snooze, as President Ezra Taft Benson once said. There's a, a certain amount of spiritual slumber that becomes so dangerous, and it's kind of like you've got to wake up and see your situation and see what is going on. And if I were to summarize Second Nephi chapter 8, I might say this. We should find joy and hope in the promises God has made. Sadly, there's often a lack of joy among members of the church. Many of us seem to prefer guilt and discouragement. We have the knowledge that this fallen earth will be renewed and glorified and the assurance we need not fear anything that man can do. The Lord has not lost his power. He will bring again Zion, but he will do it according to his timetable. Part of having faith in Christ is having faith in his timing. And in the meantime, we can enjoy a portion of Zion in our lives by spreading the gospel message around the world. Now, 2 Nephi 9 is where I want to spend most of the time because it is such an important chapter. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland uh, commented on 2 Nephi 9 by saying this, This is a wonderfully explicit sermon on Christ and his eternal covenant with the human family. That's in Elder Holland's book, Christ and the New Covenant, on page 69. And Elder Bruce R. McConkie said, Our most explicit teachings on the atonement of Christ are in 2 Nephi 2 and 2 Nephi 9 and Alma 34. And I don't know if you've ever been bored in church or if you'd admit it, but one time I was looking through my quad to find the pages of scriptures with the most footnotes. And in the Book of Mormon, I found the most footnotes are on 2 Nephi 9 in page 75, if you're using paper scriptures, which is tied with Mosiah chapter 3 on page 152, which is King Benjamin's speech. And we could ask, why is that? Well, both of these chapters are about the atonement of Christ. So they're very doctrinally rich. I call 2 Nephi 9 the O's and woes chapters because there are O's in verses 10, 13, 17, 19, and 20. Let's see, I think I may have missed. Yeah, there's one in verse 8 too. Oh, the wisdom of God is mercy and grace. Verse 10, oh, how great the goodness of our God. Verse 13, oh, how great the plan of our God. Verse 17, oh, the greatness and the justice of our God. Verse 19, oh, the greatness of the mercy of our God. And verse 20, oh, how great the holiness of our God. Some of the things that he teaches here about the atonement are so good. Verse 21, he cometh into the world that he may save all men if they will hearken unto his voice. For behold, he suffereth the pains of all men. Yea, the pains of every living creature, both men, women, and children who belong to the family of Adam. Wow. Now verse 26 Verse 24, I better stop there, is so nice to hear the doctrine of Christ repeated so often, which is Article of Faith 4, submit to God's will, believe in Christ, repent, endure to the end. It's those first principles and ordinances of the gospel. And if they will not repent and believe on his name and be baptized in his name, and endure to the end, they must be damned, for the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has spoken it. Now, verse 26 is one of these great verses that explains a little bit more about what the atonement does. 
for the atonement satisfieth the demands of his justice upon all those who have not the law given to them. And they are delivered from that awful monster death and hell, and the devil and the lake of fire and brimstone, which is endless torment. And they are restored to that God who gave them breath, which is the Holy One of Israel. The atonement satisfies the demands of justice, not just to those who repent, but those who have not the law given unto them. Only a fullness of knowledge brings a fullness of accountability, and some may never hear the gospel in this life, but will be judged according to what we have done on the light that we have received. I've always loved verse 28. Oh, the cunning plan of the evil one. Oh, the vainness, the frailties, the foolishness of men. When they are learned, they think they are wise, and they hearken not unto the counsel of God. They set it aside, supposing they know of themselves. Wherefore, their wisdom is foolishness, and it profiteth them not. A good question might be, well, what's the difference between learned and wise? Well, here's my take on it. Learned could mean They've acquired educational status, bestowed by the world. So they have degrees. They have their piece of paper on the wall. But wisdom could mean much more, like knowledge from God. Think about this. If we gathered the world's very best scientists, gave them the very best lab equipment, unlimited time and resources, and asked them to create one mosquito, could they do it? The most learned among us should feel humbled by the wisdom of God. And there's a really big if in verse 29. But to be learned is good if they hearken unto the counsels of God. And hearken means not only to hear, but to obey. I like that it says when they're learned, they think they are wise. And I kind of made my own footnote there to Doctrine and Covenants section 45, verse 57. Speaking of doctrinally rich pages of Scripture, section 45 in the Doctrine and Covenants is, is awesome. So they that are wise, Doctrine and Covenants section 45 verse 57 says, For they that are wise and have received the truth, and I don't think it just means they heard it, it means they received it, they let it in, they received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide and have not been deceived, Verily, I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, but shall abide the day. So that's what we are after, to be wise. And when we have the gift of the Holy Ghost conferred upon us, we have, my goodness, we have access to infinite intelligence. Now, the woes start up in verse 30. Woe unto the rich, who are rich as to the thing things of this world. Woe unto the deaf that will not hear. This is the difference between will not and cannot is a choice. You choose not to hear. These are people that, are, that need to awake, awake, who are already awake. They need to wake up spiritually. Woe unto the blind that will not see. Again, refuse to see. Verse 33, woe unto the uncircumcised of heart, for a knowledge of their iniquities shall smite them at the last day uncircumcised of heart, if you're trying to explain that to children, you might say circumcision was an outward expression of the Abrahamic covenant. And so I like to say uncircumcised of heart, they haven't made covenants 
in their hearts. Continuing, woe to the liar, verse 34, verse 35, woe to the murderer, woe to them that commit whoredoms, woe to all those who worship idols. Verse 42 is another important verse. Whoso knocketh to him will he open, and the wise, there that is again, and the learned, and they that are rich who are puffed up because of their learning and their wisdom, that sounds like worldly wisdom, and their riches, yea, they are they whom he despiseth, and say they shall cast thee these things away, and consider themselves fools before God, and come down in the depths of humility, he will not open unto them. I remember years ago there was a video made about Hugh Nibley, the great greatest scholars the church has ever had. And Hugh Nibley once remarked in this video called Faith of an Observer they made about his life, He said, none of us is very smart, none of us know very much, but the thing the angels envy us for is that we can forgive and we can repent. Just kind of an amazing statement. (laughs) Second Nephi 9.48, Behold, if ye were holy, I would speak unto you of holiness. (laughs) What are you trying to say, Jacob? But as ye are not holy, and ye look upon me as a teacher, it must needs be expedient that I teach you the consequences of sin. Wow, what a verse. Everything we do has a consequence. Uh, Satan desires to hide consequences and tries to focus us only on short-term thinking without regard to long-term effects. So I love that Elder Neil A. Maxwell said once, we must want the consequences of what we want. And that requires more of a long-term thinking. You might remember President Oaks gave a talk called, Where Will This Lead? And thinking of our choices, where will this lead down the road? What outcome will this take me to? Verse 51 of Second Nephi 9, Wherefore, do not spend money for that which is of no worth, nor your labor for that which cannot satisfy. Hearken diligently unto me, and remember the words which I have spoken, and come unto the Holy One of Israel, Feast upon that which perisheth not, neither can be corrupted, and let your soul delight in fatness. Now, I think this was written in a different day and time, (laughs) but that sounds like an unusual diet plan, doesn't it? But what I like about that, don't spend your money for that which is of no worth, nor your labor for that which cannot satisfy. A couple of the phrases I've heard, I think Stephen Covey uses them, you don't want to spend your whole life climbing the ladder of success only to discover it's leaning against the wrong wall. Wow, yeah. What is the right wall? It's your labor for that which can satisfy. Spending money for that, money, time, capital, your life, your emotional energy for things that matter. Come unto the Holy One of Israel and feast upon that which perisheth not. So, wow, Second Nephi 9 is quite the chapter. Verse 53, How great the covenants of the Lord! How great His condescensions unto the children of men! Because of His greatness and His grace and mercy, He has promised unto us that our seed shall not utterly be destroyed. Okay, so this sounds like that part of the title page talking to His own people, the remnant of the house of Israel, the children of Lehi. And in future generations, they shall become a righteous branch unto the house of Israel. Okay, 2 Nephi chapter 10, 
some highlights here, and then we'll be done. 2 Nephi 10 verse 16 is, is very helpful. If you go way back to, you know, like 1 Nephi 13 and 14, you've got this. There's two churches only, Church of the Lamb of God and the Church of the Devil. And it sounds, kind of kicks up a lot of dust because it makes it sound like everybody, and we all have friends of other faiths or Christian denominations who are wonderful, God-fearing, Jesus-loving people. Would we say they're in the church of the devil? I wouldn't. And so a better description, a better dichotomy here is in 2 Nephi 10, 16. Wherefore, he that fighteth against Zion, both Jew and Gentile, both bond and free, both male and female shall perish. For they are they who are the whore of all the earth. For they who are not for me are against me, saith our God. So, fighting against Zion, against unity, against oneness, against the pure in heart, that's the church of the devil. So, I think as we talked about before in 1 Nephi 13 and 14, as uh, Stephen Robinson said, it's more about who has your heart than who has your records. <laughs> and there's an article if you want more on that, that he wrote in the Ensign magazine, I want to say 1988, called Warring Against the Saints of God, which goes through 1 Nephi 13 and 14 in great detail. Verse 20, we have to end with this one. It's so nice. And now, my beloved brethren, 2 Nephi 10, 20, seeing that our merciful God has given us so great knowledge concerning these things, let us remember him and lay aside our sins and not hang down our heads for we are not cast off. Nevertheless, we have been driven out of the land of our inheritance, but we have been led to a better land, for the Lord has made the sea our path, and we are upon an isle of the sea. And great are the promises, but great are the promises of the Lord unto them who are upon the isles of the sea. That's going into verse 21, and this is some of these Isaiah chapters begin, O isles, listen together, like in Isaiah uh, 49, verse 1. So, I know that in the Book of Mormon student manual, it says anything they had to cross land to get to, they considered an isle of the sea. And this must have seemed uh, very applicable to them because they had crossed waters to get to the place where they are now, where this is being written. Well, I hope this has been helpful. And we will continue next time.